Hello and welcome to our uh, podcast today. Normally we would do this in front of a live uh, chapel audience uh, in class, but uh, given the the virus conditions at the moment, we've decided to do this uh, in this manner, and hopefully this will work until we're able to get back and see each other again. So you're going to just have to begin by picturing that all of us are sitting in there in the chapel, and we're looking at each other, and we're ready to to rock and roll. But uh, welcome today as we uh, we get to continue to uh, follow along with uh, the journeys of Paul. Um, before we do uh, today, though, can I begin going in uh, this direction? And it's one that uh, perhaps we've heard in the past, uh, but I think it's kind of a good place to start. Uh, at the shortly before or shortly after Lehi is leaving with his family from Jerusalem, just after they leave, uh, the Babylonians come in and they completely capture the city. Uh, most of the people are taken off captive to Babylon. Uh, a number of the poor farmers are left so that they continue to grow crops and pay taxes uh, back to Nebuchadnezzar. But by and large, most of the people, the princes and kings and queens and upper class, are, the aristocracy are all taken off to Babylon. Uh, and there they live as refugees uh, for the balance of 70 years. And when they first get to Babylon, we know that they are huddled alongside the river, uh, living outside the, the city walls uh, until they're assimilated into the city. Um, and yet, to begin to see the scope of this, you have to picture... Uh, who these people are. This is, this is Israel. This is the Lord's anointed people. These are the ones that, uh, the, the children of the, the promise. They're, this is the people living near uh, the temple of uh, Solomon, which was where God was supposed to be able to dwell. This is the place that God would fight their armies as he did for Hezekiah. Uh, and for all of that to be overthrown, including the fact that they had uh, as their, the land that they had been given uh, under Abraham, to lose all of that, to be homeless outside of Babylon, to have lost their land, uh, to have lost the, the house of God, to, to have lost their, their culture, was, was would have been completely devastating. Um, where is God? What happened? Uh, I thought we were who we were. Apparently we're not. Um, what would this mean? Who did this? How did this happen? All of these forces are, are combining against us. Um, this is why we get in uh, Ezekiel records as the Lord is revealing a revelation to him about the fact that uh, the, the parable at the time, the proverb, uh, said this. This is in Ezekiel 18. What mean ye, he says, 
that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, that that's, may seem a little bit strange to us, but can we say this a little bit differently? Uh, we joke often about the fact that if this was said in Texas, we would be saying, uh, the fathers have eaten jalapenos, and the children's teeth are burning. In other words, somebody else has done something, and we're the recipients. It wasn't our fault, and it's landed on us. And we're having to face all of the consequences of that. Now, as we, uh, as we sit today uh, kind of socially distanced and quarantined or isolated, uh, as, our, uh, as our state president uh, indicated in a uh, conference call earlier today, the church is mothballed. We are, uh, we're operating out of our homes due to the virus and the possibility of, of being contaminated. Um, and we're waiting for that to, to change. Uh, now, how did that happen? How did we get to this point where uh, things have happened that are outside of our control, but they affect us greatly, where we're not able to, to be at church, we're not able to go to a, a sports event or to the theater? Um, something else has happened, and our teeth are on edge as, we're, as we've lost control over our world and we and we wonder about that and this is where the I think where the, the struggle really begins to lie is how do we do this well if you think about the lives that we live on a daily basis most of our comfort and peace is based on the idea that we can predict our world around us we know what's coming we have routines and habits um, we know that when we go to certain restaurants, what we will get, or we can go to the store and we can buy certain things and it will be in the same place on the same aisle. We just know what to expect. Um, we know what our world looks like around us. Our ability to have safety and trust uh, is largely dependent on our being able to predict what's, what's going to happen. The, the reactions of people, uh, our world and, and what to expect um, and that builds trust, that builds confidence, and that leaves us at peace. Um, this crisis has come along and it, it has stolen all of that. It has disrupted our routines. It's left us guessing. We don't know when the quarantines will be lifted. We don't know how bad the crisis will be. We don't know when the stores will be open again. We don't know. Sometime down the road, somebody might, you might be listening to this months from now saying, well, I know when that happened. Uh, and ultimately, we will know when all those things begin to start up again. But at the moment, as we're living in these moments of un unknown, um, we're a little bit like somebody who has just had uh, a cancer scare. The, the doctor has gotten a biopsy, and you're sitting in in her office waiting to find out what the results will be and you don't and you don't know there's an uncertainty about what will happen uh, and then once you get a diagnosis uh, for whatever illness 
then you, this, is new, this is a new world. This is a new direction that you don't know what to expect. So there's anxiety. And we get worried and we struggle. Anytime we have these events, these kind of things are concerning. Uh, I know that, for instance, in my practice, when I deal with people that are struggling with anxiety or clinical depression, part of the thing that makes it harder is being able to predict what comes next. How will I feel? Um, when will the next panic attack show up? How will I know when I'm going to get anxious next? How do I know the next time I will become deeply depressed and won't be able to get out of bed? Uh, will I know how to deal with people? And so generally, the more that somebody struggles with depression and anxiety, the more likely they are to want to isolate. Let me pull in, pull up the drawbridge, let me close up my castle, I'll disappear into my room, or into my house, or into my world, and I'm going to simply isolate because I can predict things better inside there. I will cut myself off from people that might be unpredictable. Well, look at what's happened. In the process of trying to deal with a worldwide pandemic, we've been isolated. We've been sent to our room, and here we are, separated out from other people so that we can think and dwell on what's going on that over so many things that we have lack of control over. Interestingly enough though, when we start looking at people that are clinically depressed who then isolate, the isolation doesn't make it better, does it? It makes it worse. The longer we isolate, the more depressed we get. The more we're separated, the more our, we can overthink and over-prepare and be worried and without getting answers, without getting any positive feedback or any validation. Isolation oftentimes takes those emotions and feelings and makes them worse. Where we struggle in the middle of harsh weather or now in a more extended sphere of, of this virus, we've been isolated. Our world is mothballed and things are different. And the question is, how do we survive without having depression, anxiety get worse? For the overthinkers that want to overthink more, for those like with obsessive compulsive that like to wash their hands to begin with, now they got to wash them more, now everybody's washing it more, that's going to make that worse. Now we can worry more about what comes next. So we have to find ways during this time uh, to be able to keep, hold on to things that are routine as much as we can. The more routine things, both for ourselves and our families, the more that we tell ourselves that the world is, is still intact as much as it possibly can be. Uh, I found it interesting that uh, in the midst of all the shortages at the grocery store, uh, I went to a grocery store yesterday uh, 
and where I'd been in some other grocery stores looking for some fresh vegetables and all the fresh, fresh vegetables along with the water and toilet paper were all gone. I went to this store yesterday afternoon and the vegetables were there and the fruits were there and everything looked normal and I found myself physically exhaling and saying ah, my world is back my, I can predict my world because things are where I expect them to be so during this time the more that we can hang on to routines the more that we can establish comfortable routines um, we have to find way to have meaningful connections with with people that we like now as we can with family and very carefully we can we can face to face uh, perhaps through at work or in, in other settings but the more that we're able to have regular routines that enable us to to feel a little bit more relaxed and comfortable while we're waiting for restrictions to ease that will help we want that feeling of being normal and we want those feelings of being f where things must uh, be familiar to us so that we get through. Now, back to the children of Israel for a minute. So there they sat on the river. Uh, their familiar world was gone. The temple was in rubble and, and they had no idea when they would be going home, if they would be going home. In some ways they had no idea whether Israel as a people would even survive. In fact, um, that's one of the reasons why we believe that much of the Old Testament was finally actually written down and formally organized into Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Actually was written during this time in Exodus in Babylon because this was the scribes way these faithful scribes this was their way of being able to maybe uh, preserve Israel as a nation and preserve Israel as a people uh, in the fear that they might have lost it uh, already uh, so we then get through uh, the, another prophet, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, you're going to find the voice of the Lord speaking to a group of people in captivity, which is, I think, where a lot of us during this period of time may feel that we're in some kind of captivity with, with loss of control. So hear the words of the Lord speaking peace in the middle of captivity. Jeremiah 29, he says... Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all who have been carried away captives, um, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Here comes his counsel. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. In other words, live your life. Plant, build your house. Plant your gardens. Without knowing when you're going back, build your houses. As, as Elder Uchtdorf would have said, 
lift where you stand. Uh, do, your, do your routine right where you are. Build ye houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Fruit of them. And then he says in verse 7, And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. We know that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon. There was peace in his beautiful city, the large blue gates uh, are still found in the British Museum of History uh, out the gates of Babylon seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray unto the Lord for it for peace for in the peace thereof you shall have peace in other words until you go back you can have peace where you are even though we're isolated, we can have peace where, where we are right at, at the moment. We can find the peace there. You have peace. And then he gives this beautiful reassurance. Verse 11. For, he says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Whose end? His end. We, they didn't know what to expect, but he did. He knew what he expected. He knew what was coming. And I think peace towards you. I don't hate you. I'm going to give you an expected end. Then he says shall ye call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. I will hearken unto you. I have not forgotten you. Uh, can a suckling mother forget her child? Quote Isaiah. And ye shall seek me and find me. And when you shall search for me with all your heart. And then this great promise to these bedraggled, isolated, homeless Israelites, far from home. He says, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. And I will turn away your captivity, and then this promise, and I will gather you from all the nations. There comes a day when as we seek the peace of the city and we seek our peace with him, that he will bring us home. He will lift our captivity. Life will return to normal in his expected end. But in the meantime, we are to find peace in the city, seek him, find him, and we'll find that peace. And you're going to find that there will be a moment in the not-too-distant future where he will turn away our captivity and he will gather us in and bring us to our wards and bring us to our state conferences and bring us back to the people that we love 
and we will surround, be surrounded again with all those things that bring us familiarity and love and comfort as a community and give us the expected end that he has in mind. So as we, as we take a look, we continue to look at, at uh, Paul here. Once you keep in mind that we are able to, we'll find that peace in captivity, as certainly Paul was searching for that, uh, as he was looking for his community in the way that, uh, where we feel like we have been mothballed at the moment and not able to gather. I think Paul was feeling some of that as well. So, that said, <coughs> let's move on now if we can, and, and let's talk about uh, the Apostle Paul. If, if, you're, if you've got your, uh, your book, and again, for those of you who are just maybe joining us, we're going to be working out of the Tom Wayman's uh, LDS uh, translation of the New Testament, the Wayman version, and we're going we're gonna to start here in... Uh, chapter 19. We were talking last time about the fact that Paul was in Corinth and and uh, was starting to build there. And We were talking last time about how all of the conflicts that were going on, the, the ethnic struggles and the battles between how do you mix uh, Greeks, uh, the wisdom of the Greeks, and combine that with the power of, of Roman society in a Roman city um, while he starts off preaching to the Jews and you have Jewish tradition and then we have a, a new emerging way uh, of how, how do you be a Christian as Paul would say how do you be a human in a new way with a new king and all of that was a brand new tradition to the Corinthians they didn't know how to do that and they did it uh, kind of like the early saints did uh, with Joseph Smith. They did it in fits and starts. They did it successfully sometimes and then did a horrible job at other times. Uh, and they were having a hard time blending and creating a new tradition of uh, Christ followers in the midst of all the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans. Um, so ultimately... Uh, Acts 19 says that Paul remained for many days in Corinth, about 18 months, we think. And then he takes leave of his brothers and sisters there, and by then they are brothers and sisters. And he sails for Syria, meaning really Asia. But as we've talked about before, he's going to take some people with him. He's going to take Priscilla, or Prisca, and Aquila, um, that had been monumental in helping the, start, the church get started in Corinth. Uh, and he's going to take others, uh, probably Titus, uh, Epictetus, some of the others that are running around there. And they're going to sail now over to the other main port uh, in that Mediterranean region, kind of ringing the Aegean Sea. Uh, you're going to have the mighty city of Corinth uh, the cultural city of Athens, but they're going to sail across, and they're going to they're going to be on their way over to uh, the great 
city of Artemis, uh, Ephesus. It says they came down to Ephesus and he left them, uh, his people there in Ephesus. But he go, he, there he goes into the synagogue and he does what he always does. This is Paul entering a new city. What does he do? He's going to go, first of all, to his people, the Jews, and he's going to go to the synagogue and he's going to reason with them. Um, it goes well at beginning. They want him to stay longer. He declines. Uh, he departs. He leaves uh, his people there. Uh, he took sail. Uh, he does a little bit more of uh, traveling around. Uh, the writers of, of uh, Acts are going to kind of condense all of this. Um, and then it's going to say that when Apollos is coming to Corinth, Paul finishes his journey through the inter- in interior regions, and he comes back to Ephesus. And there it says that he found some disciples. Now, uh, before we start, let, let, let me give a little bit of background uh, on when we start talking about uh, the great city of Ephesus. Um, years ago, uh, Cindy and I had a chance to help lead a group, uh, and we were in Istanbul. And we came to the great uh, church, the, the Hagia Sophia, the, the House of uh, Wisdom, Church of Wisdom, Hagia Sophia, um, and had a chance to see there. This was the this had been the Church of, of Constantine at one time. This was the head of the entire Roman uh, Empire uh, while it was still a republic, but was becoming an empire. Uh, this massive church whose dome, the only dome that matches it in size, is is Saint Peter's Basilica. Uh, the two domes are are almost the same size. Two massive, massive domes. Um, now, one of the things that we found interesting is that as we as we walked around inside this ancient church, there are uh, these massive pillars inside the church that hold up um, a lot of the infrastructure inside the Hagia Sophia. Uh, Six of them. There are six green, massive pillars. Uh, and in talking to the, the guides there, what, what they were doing in Istanbul, as, they were, as this was the head of the Roman Empire for a time under Constantine, is that they would, as they conquered different areas, they would bring in parts uh, from other parts of the realm to, to help build the city. Um, so, for instance, the massive aqueduct in, uh, where the water was in, in Ephesus is made up of pillars inside that came from every part of the empire. Uh, they all look different because they're all from different parts. Uh, and it was the same thing with the Hagia Sophia. The church dome is being held up by all of these um, pillars from all over the, the empire. Six of them are green, and six of them came from the ancient uh, city uh, of, of Ephesus, but specifically after the Romans had conquered Ephesus and had destroyed the temple of Artemis. And six of those massive pillars 
came from that Temple of Artemis. Um, now, the Temple of Artemis, uh, we were looking at s some pictures as a class a couple of weeks ago about showing the, uh, the beautiful, massive Parthenon that sits on top of the Acropolis in, in Athens that can be seen from all over the place. And you, they're still in the process of trying to rebuild this massive Parthenon. Um, now, the Temple of Artemis, located in, in Ephesus, right there on the Turkish coast, was four times larger than the Parthenon. Four times larger. It, the, the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, along with the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and others. Uh, that massive temple of Artemis made for it uh, a place where, where all within the Roman Empire people would come from all around to, to uh, worship at the Temple of Artemis. Um, in the, the Roman world she would have been seen more as Diana. Uh, the god of war, but for Artemis, she was the temple, she was the goddess of fertility. Um, and and her all, the all-female temple worshipers and, and uh, those that operated within that realm um, brought a lot of money uh, to the city. Uh, the city grew incredibly prosperous. Uh, it, had, it had a large water tank uh, up on the on the eastern side, that could be heated with water, uh, and then and then pipes would carry that water down underneath the streets of Ephesus. So here is a place, uh, a couple of hundred years before Christ, with heated streets on cold winter days. Uh, they could also run cool water underneath those streets and cool the stones off on a hot summer day. Uh, incredible place. Um, and it has at its center near the marketplace between the on the other side of the marketplace near the theater was a massive library and its library rivaled the library at Alexandria. Uh, and, and, and was a again, a, a draw. So you're trying to think, if you're trying to picture what kind of place did had Paul arrived at, uh, you'd have to look at Ephesus almost more like um, Las Vegas in the fact that it was a tourist attraction. It would it'd be a place where people would come. Uh, part of what they would do when they got there was that, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later, um, is that in order to do that, they would they would buy souvenirs for having been in uh, Ephesus, and these little souvenirs were these uh, silver uh, Artemis statues. There's a she's a multi-breasted silver statue of fertility, and you would take that souvenir, that silver souvenir from Ephesus and you take it home and you'd create in your house a little shrine to uh, Artemis and you would uh, make offerings to her. Uh, you might bake cakes for her uh, or ha light candles to her and she would bless your home uh, because you, had, you were honoring Artemis and she would bring fertility uh, 
uh, to your life. And uh, and so that was a place you wanted to be able to go to um, Ephesus and get, and get the little silver statues to prove you were there, um, but also so that you could have Artem, the blessings of Artemis in your life on a regular basis. What a deal. Uh, we liked that a lot, and they did like that a lot, and there was a, that was one of those reasons to, to come. Okay? Now, if we take a look then at um, that as Paul is coming back into town, he finds that there are, there are a limited amount of um, believers inside the city uh, who had actually were still trusting in the baptism of John. He's going to bring to them uh, the full gospel of Jesus and is going to give them the Holy Spirit. And and he says, and and they the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. Uh, it looks like they had some kind of a mini uh, Pentecost experience, and there was about twelve of them. So it's a small little group. Uh, but what does he do? Well, he does what Paul does. Again, he's going to enter back into the synagogue. Remember, they wanted him to come back. Um, and and as they're coming back, uh, he's going to be able to set up. Um, the gospel and it says that he entered the synagogue and sp- and sp- spoke boldly f- for three months ah, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God so he actually there are 12 Sabbaths where Paul is able to preach um, in the synagogue and and try try to get them to see things his way. Well, nine, verse nine says, "And some were hardened, probably the synagogue leaders, and refused to believe, and spoke evil of the way." After after uh, twelve Sabbaths, they'd heard enough from Paul. He was enough of a threat. Uh, They're going to begin to push back. Uh, they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. So what does Paul do? Well, he leaves them. He left them, and he took his uh, converts with him. And then he does something that he hadn't been able to really do in Corinth. Um, it says that he taught them every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. So, so here for the first time, he's actually able to have a, a regular place where he's going to preach. Um, and he's able to do it for two years. So here he has this place uh, where uh, maybe a couple of times a day people are able to come and hear him preach and have discussions uh, on a variety of topics in the same place, and it works. And for the first time maybe in his entire uh, missionary career, he begins to have the kind of success that he would have dreamed of. and it, and it begins to build, and there's, there's some consistency. And he's not having to travel so much. They're coming to him. Uh, things, are, things are really beginning to look up uh, where he's had for, for years. Um, and the writers of Acts are going to say in verse 10, this happened for two years so, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Well, we're going to start hearing in just a second 
kind of this, there's an overly optimistic tone in the writer of Acts that we'll call Luke. Um, he just thinks things are going along swimmingly. Um, and, we'll, and, and we'll see this tone, uh, and there's, it's not so much naive as much as it is kind of painting this rosy picture that uh, turned out not to be as rosy as he thought. Um, verse 11, it says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that when handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched him were brought to the sick, their illnesses left them and the evil spirits departed from them. Wow, things really are moving along uh, at, a, at a great rate. Now, before we take a look at what happens next, uh, there, there's another aspect of ancient Greco-Roman life that we have to be able to account for. Um, and that is that one of the, one of the little subtle subcultures that sits uh, all the time in the middle of this that you may not necessarily be aware of is the magic culture. Uh, there is there, if you live in a world where, without a lot of scientific understanding, uh, the world is a pretty unpredictable place. I mean, you don't necessarily know when the rains are going to come or not. Uh, you don't know when another army might come over the hill. Um, we're, we're trying to understand how to deal with a with a virus at the moment, they would have mysterious illnesses that would come across them. There was so much in this ancient world that was just out of control uh, that you weren't able to to manage. And so they were always looking for ways to, how do we reduce our pain in our life and the uncertainty? Sound familiar? How do we reduce the uncertainty? Well, there's a couple of ways to do that. One is going to be by praying to the gods to try and get their help, and so there's the, re and that's kind of a religious aspect. We're we're grateful for Artemis and for who she is. We're going to pray for her and for her blessings on her house. That's the religious side. Now, the other side of this, though, kind of the darker side, even of that, is the magic side, and this is where you begin to have a lot of magicians that are operating, and Paul is in constant running up against the magicians. Um, we see it very first when he, on his very first mission. He's gonna, uh, he's gonna, the first island. Remember that he gets to, he gets the, to Cyprus and he goes down to talk to Claudius Paulus, and Paulus is being talked to by one of these uh, magicians, a man by the name of Bar Jesus, um, and and these magicians operate with. Uh, with kind of supernatural power. Um, and maybe the best way to explain kind of what they're doing is when we take a look at someone like Harry Potter and, and we get the wizards. How do wizards and magic people work? Um, well, what happens is there are, there are special implements like uh, magic wands uh, or magic cloaks and in order to use them, though, you have to be able to have the magic words that go along with that, the abracadabra or the, the right spell. If you're going to put a spell on your political enemy uh, or, or a, a former spouse, 
you've got to have the right implement and you've got to have the right um, words to say. If you don't say the right words, then nothing really happens. Uh, the magicians knew the right words. Uh, they have, we've uncovered many uh, Greek magic books that have all the right spells in them. Um, and and uh, where they would copy down these spells and, and to say the right words and make magic happen. And they could be hired out by somebody um, to, to be able to, uh, to accomplish that or be hired into to come take care of somebody else's business or something like that. This is the magic side. Um, and and there, was, there was magicians that could come in and do things like that and, and see results were seen as very powerful people. So look at what's about to happen here. And, and you have to see uh, how the dark arts kind of uh, are, are mimicking a lot of priesthood power. Uh, so let, let's go back and let's go back and read this uh, again with the idea of a people soaked in magic culture. Um, in verse eleven, again, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. Paul was doing some things so that when when handkerchiefs or aprons had touched him. When he would pray on or have contact with uh, a, a handkerchief or aprons, um, by the way, uh, there are uh, televangelists out there who make hay on selling uh, aprons and, and napkins and cloths and stuff that will heal people. Um, Paul, so that uh, miracles by Paul's hands, so that when, he, when handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were brought to the sick, their illnesses left them, and the evil spirits departed from them. So in essence, for a lot of these people, again, soaked in, um, in uh, the magic culture, uh, here comes a man who, uh, who can perform mighty deeds. Uh, people get well. Uh, the dead rise. And, and what is he doing? Well, they're just having to use a handkerchief that touched Paul. Um, so you see these implements. But here's the other thing. What was the magic word? What is the magic word that Paul was using to create the magic that was making all this happen? The magic word was Jesus. So as he would come and pray in the name of Jesus. Even if you're, if you're magic, you understand that world. Oh, he, he knows the magic word. The magic word must be Jesus. We don't know who Jesus was. We hear these rumors about who he might have been. But all we know is that when, when you have these handkerchiefs and you use the name Jesus, it seems to be working for this powerful magician named Paul who seems to be making all things happen. Uh, cool. We should be able to do the same thing. That's how that works. Oh, we just, we've been using the wrong magic. We've been using the wrong words. Ours, ours is kind of lame. Wow, he's getting great results off of him. Man, Paul is fantastic. Uh, let's do it Paul's way. So, it makes sense. So, here comes 13. Some traveling Jewish exorcists, 
These are guys that are you could hire to come in and cast out the demons out of your family because they would have the magic words or something to be able to drive out the demons. Uh, demon demon uh, exercising seemed to be a big deal both in, Jew, in, in the Savior's time as well as even in Greco-Roman world. They just had a problem with demons. They're all over the place. Um, so what are you going to do? Well, you're going to hire one of these guys to cast the demons out. That's what you're looking for. When, maybe you can get one on the cheap. That's nice. Uh, but otherwise, these guys are good. Call them in. They'll take care of things. So some traveling Jewish exorcists are called called on the name of the, of the Lord. They're, they weren't calling on the name of the Savior of the world. They were calling on the magic name as they saw it. Work for Paul. It'll work for us. So we're going to uh, we're gonna go after some that are possessed with evil spirits, and we're going to use the name of Jesus on it, and that should do it. Uh, he showed the way. We don't need Paul to do this. So they, they would say, but Paul is the one that kind of introduced himself, so we're going to give him some due, okay? So these traveling uh, Jewish exorcists, by the way, wouldn't this make a great movie? This is just a great movie. Uh, I love this. Um, Okay, um, call on the name of the Lord. Those that were possessed by evil spirits saying, I command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. To them it's like saying Alakazam uh, with a really powerful one. I command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva who were doing this. They, they were making pretty good bank on the fact that they were casting out and now we have an even more powerful thing. It's this, it's this Jesus by whom Paul preaches. But it backfires. Uh, but the evil spirit replied to them and says, I know Jesus and I'm acquainted with Paul. But who are you? There's a great moment. There, there's a great moment where the, the evil spirit goes, oh, okay, you're using that one, but you're not one of those that has authority. Uh, you're just, you think you're just lightly using this name. You have no idea what you're talking about. I know Jesus, and I know Paul. If he were here in the name, casting me out in the name of Jesus, different story. But who are you, pretenders? Um and then we and then then the writer of Acts says, The man in whom there was an evil spirit jumped upon the sons of Sceva. Remember there were seven of them, jumped upon the sons of Sceva and overpowered them so that they fled from the house naked and wounded. <laughs> this man, filled with an evil spirit, beats up the seven sons of Sceva. Um, now I think it's a real understatement for them to say in, in, in verse 17. Um, this was known to all the Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. Yeah, that story would take about two minutes to get out among all in Ephesus about how these professional exorcists rolled in. Uh, and they're Jewish, but give them their due. They're going to roll in and try and throw this demon out and the next thing we know 
these these naked guys are running out all bleeding and beat up by this guy. Uh, that story would be headlines uh, on the Ephesus Evening News, and everybody would know that really soon. Uh, and it says, And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Um, now, again, let's stop here. <laughs> I don't. I don't believe for a second that automatically these sons of Sceva uh, or a lot of these people that are hearing this says, "Oh, wait a minute. We thought Jesus was a magic name. He's actually the Messiah of the world, and he's going to take care of our sins, and we're now going to believe." Um, there may have been a handful that were going to get more information from Paul or from Aquila or somebody and join the church, a way to be introduced to the gospel. But I think by and large, they just saw a greater power. Uh, and so uh, fear fell upon them. Now, the writer would say the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus was praised. Maybe in some areas, but in other places, they just would see it, this is the most powerful. Paul is, is a more powerful magician than we had any idea. Now, there are going to be some. Many of those who believe came forward confessing and making their actions known. Now, what are they going to end up doing then? And, and this action has kind of been misunderstood, I think, in, some, in, in a lot of church settings. Because the next line is, Many of those who practiced magic gathered their books and burned them publicly. And when they added up the price of them, they were worth 50,000 silver coins. Now, of that group, there may have been a handful that says, I'm going to denounce magic and join the way and start living all my meals humbly in concert with these other believers um, because Jesus is the Messiah. I think what is more likely is that there's a very large group here that says, um, especially if you look at what's about to happen in Ephesus, we just got put out of business. This, it's, a da it's become a dangerous business our, our magic isn't working, but if we use the name of Jesus, we're going to get beat up. <laughs> so we're going to get out of the business. We've got to find something else to do. Maybe Paul can teach us how to make tents. I don't know. But it, they're going to come forward, and they're going to burn their books. And then the writer says, I think optimistically, in this way, the word of God was increasing in power and prevailed. Well, power and prevail is in the short run. That is a, that is a short-term prevailing. Uh, because what, what's about to happen is, is going to be far worse. This is, um, I was joking earlier uh, with, with Cindy about the fact that um, that that is a this is a little bit like somebody who was writing and they'd say, um, well, Kevin was a really uh, great hunter and he encountered a bear and he, and he there was a bear standing there and he poked him with a stick 
Isn't that great? And in that way, Kevin prevailed because he was able to walk up to a bear and poke him with a stick. Uh, what an awesome guy he is and what a powerful hunter and a very um, brave man Kevin is. <laughs> and, and your question would probably be, oh, so, so Kevin was a courageous man because he poked the bear with a stick. Um, what happened next? What was, what was the next chapter for Kevin after he poked the bear with the stick? Well, that would be the rest of the story, would it not? And in this case, that's really true. Um, now, <coughs> what's going to happen here um, subsequently is that uh, Paul did poke the bear with the stick. And there was a short-term gain with, with the saints as people were joining the church. Uh, but um, as author N.T. Wright uh, has said a number of times, uh, you, don't, you don't attack the dark powers without the, without the dark powers fighting back. And that's certainly what is about uh, to happen here. Um, now, uh, much of this, uh, when we're going to be talking uh, next week about what then happens in the, in the theater. Uh, but a couple of things that we need to know about what happens from here on out. Um, I think that uh, if you take a look at the history of the, the early church, every time that, that the, the church would have some success for a while, it would reach a zenith, and then, uh, to use N.T. Wright's word, the dark powers would fight back. Um, they had great joy in the early days in Kirtland. Um, it looked like things were going really well. Uh, and then with the, the Kirtland Safety Society and other things that were happening, the dark powers struck back. And ultimately, Joseph is having to leave Kirtland in the middle of the night. Uh, kind of a broken man uh, in some areas as you get him to Missouri. Uh, they go off to... to uh, settle Independence, Missouri, and they have great success for a while, and then the dark powers strike back. Um, and, and certainly Nauvoo in its zenith uh, grows and prospers and gets wonderful, and then the dark powers strike back. And you always begin to know that so often uh, there will be short-term success and then part of the success is going to rile those on the other side of the veil whose job it is to disrupt and attack uh, members of the church and try and discredit the name of the Savior at, at every turn. And, and so we know going into this, and again we will, we will reference this more next week, that for Paul, uh, if Ephesus was easily the best of times and the worst of times. For Paul, he had two years where he had a chance to, to preach weekly, to have great success, uh, to have changes as he looked at it. Things were occurring. People were giving up 
their magic. The, the name of the Savior was being widely broadcast in all directions. Um, the, the church was prospering. And in a sense, maybe this was how the new world was supposed to happen. Uh, King Jesus was coming. The, the heaven, uh, heaven on earth was going to be joined by heaven coming down. Uh, and, and in his early days in Ephesus, he will write and he will say, I'm looking forward to being with you when Jesus comes down and returns. He believed that, like did many of the early saints, that the second coming was imminent and it would happen and he would be there to see it. By the time we get done with his Ephesus experience, he will, he will uh, have gone through a liberty jail type experience. He's about to be thrown into prison. He will be there for a long time. Uh, he will have a sentence of death passed upon his head uh, and he will believe that uh, the second coming is not imminent or if it is imminent he will be dead before it happens uh, and he's just looking almost like Joseph Smith he's looking for his rest he, he's looking to join Jesus uh, not waiting for Jesus to come to him that's the dark powers pushing back and that's that's about to happen uh, now so what's the what is the message then for us the message f for us is often as we look around that we're going to do the best that we can in our lives uh, sometimes sometimes in our striving to be the best people we know how to be uh, natural calamity falls upon us. Um, the very righteous are being affected by this virus as well as the unrighteous. The rain is falling on both. Sometimes just mortality is hard on everybody. Sometimes though there is, there is that chance that, uh, that our, our obedience and our desire to do the right thing will draw ire from those that will attack us specifically because of our obedience or because our desire to do the right thing or because we are Christians. Uh, Christian martyrs have lived throughout the, from, from the very earliest days, have they not? Uh, stories even, even this year of atrocities coming out of Africa of uh, Christian believers who will not give up their Christian belief and are slaughtered by whole villages uh, rather than give up the name of Jesus. So sometimes the dark powers get riled and there's a price to be paid. It's, it's my prayer that as we as we look at this and we see the pattern with Paul that we begin to see um, that it's our job uh, to, do, to do the things that we're asked to do while we have the time to do it. Uh, and sometimes that's going to require tremendous sacrifice, even in the midst of our greatest moments of success when it feels like that. Um, but we know that in all things that, uh, to go back to the beginning, where the Lord says, I know that you've been, I know that you've lost everything, 
or that you've gone through hardship. But I know the thoughts that I think of you, uh, thoughts of peace to give you an expected end. My prayer is, is that as we go through our lives that we'll be able to look for the ways outside of our captivity and make peace in the, the place where we are. And that by so doing that we can feel to stand, that we can stand on the other side with those martyrs that have uh, lived life in the, in the light of, of the Savior and stood tall. Uh, my prayer is that we can do that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.